Today's show is brought to you by Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. Producing quality content at a high volume is hard, and with newsfeed algorithms constantly changing and audience platform preferences changing accordingly, media companies need to be agile to stay at the top of their game. That's why content production teams at places like Time Magazine use Airtable. It's flexible enough to adapt to your process, but powerful enough to keep everyone and everything on the same page. Visit Airtable.com slash Digiday today to get $50 in free credits. Hello and welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Morrissey. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Sebastian Tomich. Sebastian is the Global Head of Advertising and Marketing Solutions at the New York Times. We spoke last week in Cannes about the Times' advertising business and if it creates a conflict with their pivot to subscriptions. We also addressed the Times' recent dip in ad revenue and the prospect for an ad-free version of the Times. Here's the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Sebastian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be back. Since then, you've been promoted, right? I guess I have. Yeah, you're yeah. now like head of all advertising and marketer solutions. Let's just call it head of advertising. Nice okay. and simple. So uh, your job is is to grow advertising. The New York Times right now is a shining example of a successful pivot to paid. Um, a lot of people didn't think it could be done. Um, and the Times is what, 3 million, I, I believe? 3 million plus global subscribers. 3 million subscribers. plus yeah. global subscribers. It is, um, it is on everyone's PowerPoint as, um, as a success story. But ads, let's talk about the ads business because how are these two not in conflict? I mean, how can you, as a company, pivot to being focused on consumer revenue and, and still grow an advertising business? Well, for the record, we have. So we did, the ad business grew last year. So that's it. Okay. I, I, think, I think the, um, you know, the key pivot was when, you know, Mark Thompson publicly said, we will go out and be a subscription business first. And it would be a complete lie if I told you that us on the advertising side saw that and, you know, threw our hands up in the air and celebrated. It was a bit scary at first because you said, what does that mean for the ad business? In terms of how it's actually played out, um, the ad business has grown. It's more of a commitment to doing things that subscribers, that are subscriber first, but many things that are subscriber first are also friendly to advertising. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of that comes out as just high quality journalism that we still, from a business model perspective, do much of the same stuff. So, so in theory, it should aid the ad business in some ways because you'll have, you'll have better data on people and... The, the people, you'll know more about them. If they're paying for a New York Times subscription, they're also probably a little bit wealthier than just some drive-by random visitor. Maybe it's a bot. Who knows these days? It's a, it's a highly lucrative audience. Should be. Yeah, I mean, a- advertisers want to, be, uh, want to reach our subscribers. And the more subscribers we have, the better it is for our ad business. But the conflict is, is it, I think the, the very obvious conflict is when it comes down to scale. So more ads on more pages. And for some publishers, that is a strategy. Like you go out onto Facebook and you, know, you do a viral post and it gets yeah. 30 million views and then you sell a lot of banner ads next to it. That's not our business. Company comes out, says we are a subscription business first. The advertising side says, what does that mean for us? And tr- it means in- less scale. By definition, it means less scale. It, agreed, 100%. Or, or in theory, you could grow the subscription business so fast 
and those subscribers are that much more engaged than the average person that comes in from Facebook and churns one page and leaves, mm -hmm. that you could end up with more scale. Now, that's a stretch. Um, that hasn't necessarily happened. So I think in terms of what our department has in terms of levers to grow the business, the one lever that has somewhat gone away is just those large surges in traffic and throwing more ads that tend to go to programmatic to grow revenue. Okay. So, so where we've had to double down is with relationships with clients. Okay. Direct. So what does that look like? That means programmatic is less important? It's, it's not programmatic becomes something that's more downstream from the core direct business mm -hmm. versus upstream and something that we focus on because in essence, we can't really control it. It becomes something that we do to monetize what we have left that we haven't sold to clients. Okay. And I think that's, that's the difference between us and a lot of other publishers. Let's talk about the Trump bump real quick because the Trump was very good for the New York Times in one way, except for being attacked regularly by him. Um, it led to an increase in in subscriptions. And a lot of publications have, have seen that, although Trump churn comes after the Trump bomb. Um, uh, but do you think Trump has hurt your ad business as the New York Times has become um, fairly or unfairly like aligned with the resistance to Trump? In that like political news now is, is I think you could argue, not a place most brands really want to be because it enrages people on one side or the other side. They don't, that doesn't seem like a very good place. It's not for, brand for safe some, for, to, to engage a consumer <laughs> with some kind of message. Ugh. I don't know if it's brand safe. We can get to that, but I just wonder whether or not, cause this was, we did a podcast event and Brian Goldberg, the CEO of bustle said that your digital ad business is shrinking because you guys are, in his words, too far left wing for, for many mainstream brands. Well, I do love Brian and the man speaks his mind <laughs> that he does. And he's a founder, so he can speak his mind. Um, so I'm probably a little bit more of a suit okay? because I represent the business. Um, but so I, first I just think one thing's interesting and I've thought about this a lot. If I was a CMO, I think I may, target controversial content no matter if it enrages you or not we, how many cmos do that here none zero okay zero but there's a compelling argument for it i mean enraged is still an emotion it means that you've thought about something and you've reacted and i think about a lot of people just passing by i think there's something valuable there that said but zero, you must zero, run into zero cmos do that but uh, so has it hurt the ad business i mean does it's it a very direct question it, it's hard to say but look the truth is it makes it harder. It makes it much harder. Um, there is no CMO that sits down and says, I want to be next to Trump. Now, most CMOs- Child detainment camps, like that does not seem like the kind of environment that most CMOs, right or wrong, wanna, they, they, they mm, get me into entertainment. So, I mean, let's take a step back and say, subscription first business or not. So I did listen to some of that podcast with Brian. Okay, uh, loved it. Um, I think subscription first business or not, it's the New York Times responsibility to cover this stuff. So had we not made that pivot, let's say we were an ad first business, yeah, be a stretch, but ad first business, we would still have covered the stories in the same way. Th these are things that are happening in the world irrespective. Right, no, no, th these, these are not related. They're not think. related. Like our this is a different issue. But it, it's, well, it's first me saying, you know, Oh, contrary to Brian's point. Okay. Subscription of business first and the tone of what's going on in the world are not related. 
um, you know, we still have to cover the same stuff. The fact is there's just so many at sometimes dark events going on in the world all at once, and it converges on the New York Times homepage. Mm-hmm. Now there are some CMOs who say, look, I don't want to be around that. You know, we challenge it. How do you challenge it when a, when a CMO says, look, the news these days is not brand safe for me? I do not buy that a reader of the New York Times sees an ad for a, let's call it a Fortune 500 tech company mm-hmm. and directly connects the stories about Trump to the brand that's in the ad above. I think it's about reaching what I would argue is the most influential audience in the world when their attention has been directed to the world's most important stories. And that's hard to find. Now, definitely, is a, it's not an easy conversation mm-hmm. to have. It's not obvious. But I still say this is the most effective place to put your brand. Mm-hmm. And it's not soft. You know, it's not soft coverage. And I'll point to, we do... Uh, my, one of the, my favorite things we do is the uh, week in good news. So you okay. get a, <laughs> I don't think, I, I'm not into You get a little, I'm not, a, in, I don't know, Sebastian, I'm not into the good news, <laughs> to be honest with you. You're cynic. You just like the dark stuff. <laughs> I want to do the week in bad news. The week in bad news. Yeah. Uh, well, it's been the New York Times a lot of times. So, <laughs> just yeah, the that, news. That, that just is our homepage. Um, but I mean, this is a super interesting conversation. It's a conversation we have, and, and, and I think it, ties to much bigger issues, which is a cultural discussion right now about brands. Do brands have a responsibility to have a point of view? What do you think? I mean, they talk here. They talk. I mean, I don't know. So it's talking. Thursday. We're in Cannes and I'm a little bit more, even There's more There's like cynical. a rosé, you know, carryover from, you know. Like, <laughs> but I don't know. Like, you know, some candy brand is talking about purpose is really at the center of what they do. And I'm like, wait, but don't you make like candy bars? Like... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, look, it's a fair conversation. I, 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 I think you have to make the business case for it. I don't think any brand, any marketer will go out of their way to take a stand on something if it negatively impacts their business. Yeah. So how about the platforms? I mean, now that, now that the New York Times is uh, subscriptions first, does that change your relationship with the platforms? Yes, 100%. In a good or a bad way? I think Just it's a, a different, different type of relationship. And, and frankly, I mean, I enjoy this relationship more, which is we're just much less dependent. You know, if you're a, you're a publisher and you're getting all of your traffic from Facebook, you are really vulnerable to every little change they make. And that's a different type of discussion. And, you know, I'm not going to say which platform, um, but I've had some experiences uh, with all of them and each of the, each of them has a different style when they come in and present to you. And which uh, is what you, you get the full gamut. You have, uh, you know, one platform that will come in and say, how can we do, how can we do things for you? How can we grow business together? What type of products can we develop? This is what we, your competitors are doing. How can we improve your business? That's a great conversation to have. You yeah. might have another platform who comes in and says, Hey, in three months, we're going to make this product change. And here's how it's going to crush your business. So you should prepare for it. Okay. Sounds that like, one is less sounds fun. Sounds like Google was the first one and Facebook's the second one. <laughs> I mean, I can't confirm uh, <laughs> it, but one is definitely less fun than the other. Okay. But I mean, you guys are also customers of these platforms too. We are customers. We are customers. Because you have to go out and acquire um, 
acquire customers. Facebook recently... We are um, customers and they are our customers. Right. These guys are all also major marketers. Yeah. So what, Facebook recently um, decided to label um, political content in some ways as ads when it's being promoted. Um, and a lot of that caused a lot of consternation among publishers. And I'm sure the New York Times was among them. Oh, just just slightly. Um, so I take it you've probably seen some of the, the, the uh, stuff Mark's been saying out in the yes, press? Yes, I have. I love it. I love it. I mean, it's just great to see someone take a stand. Um, these things are so complicated. And going back to just how, you know, our relationships with these platforms are so multifaceted, it's oftentimes hard to go, you know, if, if it's hard for us to go out and, you know, speak bad about Facebook. But in this case, this is something that but we it believe is, is wrong. As you I say, mean, it's, it's somewhat easier because you are not like completely tethered to the algorithm uh, correct. on the business side. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But I think it's, it's great. You know, when when you don't when you see something that you believe is wrong, you got to call it out. Hmm. And I think you're right. In this case, we are less vulnerable. So Mark's taking the stand, and I'm, I'm I love seeing it. Yeah. So I'm a New York Times subscriber. But how many? Just quickly on that, how many other are you seeing other publishers doing that? Uh, John Slade from the Financial Times was He's in, good. That, in that sh- seat just yesterday, and he was um, uh, he called it I think horrendous, dangerous. Horrendous and dangerous is good. I like that. Okay. <laughs> Love too that. Many words, All right. So. All right. Look, I mean, look, a lot of publishers don't want to, I mean, we, we sometimes get a little bit of grief for, for relying on unnamed sources, but there's no way you're going to get people who are going, many people who will speak truthfully about Facebook when Facebook can crush their business like the next day. Correct. You just, you just won't. I would rather have honesty than that. So, um, so I think, oh, I, I think we're heading into a, I think we're heading into a better era when it comes to all of that. Do you think this, there is this, the, we're calling it like the pivot to reality a little bit. I love that. Did you come up with that? Yeah, I believe so. All right. You get some credit. Pivot yeah. to reality. Nicely done. In the media business. Because I think a lot of different things are happening that are um, exposing a lot of like lightweight, flimsy models in which people didn't really have true brands. They didn't have true audiences. They rented them. Tra- traffic and audience are not the same thing. Right. From, from Facebook. Um, and a lot of that, it, it appears, is starting to get cleaned out. It, it, yes. And I, I, I wonder, and again, I'm not in the day-to-day with this, but I, I kind of feel like the linchpin was the venture community. Right. So if the venture community pulls out and they don't believe in those business models anymore, most of those... Well, they're not making co- money, so what... They're not making where's... money. Well, they never were making money, but right. there, was, there was, you know, the, the, probably that, that PowerPoint slide that showed revenue going up, you know, in year 2025, they're going to be making $600 million and a bunch of profit. But I think once that dream went away, I think reality checked back in. Yeah. Pivot to reality, from pivot to video to pivot to reality. Exactly. I love that. You know, that's what we do here. Uh, you guys are facing some challenges, though, too, right? On the ad business side, particularly. It, uh, last quarter, I believe it was down. A blip. Um, and explain what the blip is. So, so without making any forward-looking statements, it's, we're a publicly traded company, I um, so I can't make any forward-thinking statements. But so part of it, you know, you are going up year over year against a huge election cycle when it comes to traffic. So there's a portion of your business which is just tied to page views. And I talked about it earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're a subscription business first. You don't have that lever where, you know, you, you, and, you know, I know how some other media companies operate, you know, you'll make a call into the newsroom and say, we're down, you know, X amount of page views this quarter. You got to start writing more stuff or start pumping things through social. You got to get, got to get the numbers up. We don't do that. The, the, the nature of our business is 
pivoting to reality, but pivoting to more of these direct relationships where we will, as we head into the future, likely have less clients doing more with us. And those types of relationships, when you're selling things like services and events and creative work packaged with a lot of media, take a lot more time to produce, mm-hmm. a lot more time to produce, and they take a lot more time to get the deals done. So, you know, when in the past, when you were selling just transactional media, or a majority of your business was transactional media, print pages and banner ads, it was a lot more easy to predict quarter over quarter how your revenue was going to fall. Now, Mark uses this term lumpy to describe this. Okay. The business is just much more lumpy. So now, you know, when you have a business that's much more deal driven, you're going to see a lot more quarter to quarter fluctuation. Okay. So, so it's, it's not going to be this like... It's not a decline, it's a blip. It's, a, it's not a decline, it's a blip. Okay. Exactly. Well, I'm going to check in on, on the next Check quarter. in at the end of the year. So marketing services are a big deal now for publishers. And, and they are. How, T-Brand is how old now? Uh, we're on year five. Year five. Yeah. Um, give us the update on T-Brand because content studios are one, an area that I'm, I'm keenly focused on. You might have one yourself. We have one ourselves, but um, uh, that aside, I do wonder sometimes whether publishers rushed into this agency business and then they find that the that agency business isn't all that great. Everyone thinks that everyone else's businesses. So, <laughs> oh my God, that business looks must be so much easier. Every WPP exec was probably like, really? Yeah. I remember when, uh, when uh, everyone, the rumor was that Google wanted to do like creative agency. I remember talking to one guy. Yeah, we're going to go from uh, this 95% margin to yeah. a 5% margin. <laughs> the guy with the creative we really agency want that. was like, you could have my business. I'll have yours. Yeah, exactly. Let's swap. <laughs> Quick break for a word from our sponsor, Airtable, the all-in-one collaboration platform. The digital landscape is constantly evolving. And for your content to break through the noise, your publishing strategy needs to be adaptable. That's why when teams at digital-first media companies like Condé Nast Entertainment, BuzzFeed Studios, and Group 9 Media needed a tool to fine-tune their production processes for the modern age, they turned to Airtable. With Airtable, you can build the collaborative, streamlined production process necessary to take advantage of every trend. Try it today. Just head to Airtable.com digiday to receive $50 in free credits. Now back to the episode. Uh, so yeah, what's going on with you, Bram? Timberland's doing great. I mean, it's, it's... And how does this fit into this this fewer but bigger relationships? I think it's just one of the many, you know, tools we have in the bag. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think we're just at this point right now where us and many other media companies, I personally think, I think, in, I think you'll see this over the next year, um, will go from trying to find that silver bullet narrative of like the future of advertising is this and we are a services company now to just admitting that we're going to be a diverse business. We're going to we're going to sell many different things and the ad business of the future frankly it will be dominated by platforms. Mm-hmm. And the role of a publisher is to go in and sell ideas and that can transpire in a variety of events, content, you name it. Anything that anything any place where an idea mm-hmm. can manifest, we will sell it. So ads will become a smaller percentage of the overall pie, inevitably. I, well, hopefully, it's because we sell more subscriptions. Uh, <laughs> but no, I don't. I don't see the ad. I see the ad business in the future um, have kind of a, a, a natural limit. It's yeah. inherently not a scalable business per se. It doesn't have endless scale. I mean, unless you are one of those publishers who just jamming out page views and selling ads. But um, I think it's a much more high-touch business. 
I think it's a lower margin business. I frankly think it's a much more fun business because mm-hmm. um, you're doing really creative work and you know, you're know you competing with the best of them out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it is much different. And I just, I go back to your comment. Just well, the about, margins are different. The margins are, I mean, just you, you are adding service into the pie, which is different. You're not selling a commodity. Right. So that's a different business model. It's still very healthy in its own, as a standalone business, a very healthy business, particularly when you have media to package in. Service as a standalone business is not a great business model. Mm -hmm. So I think, going back to your point, and I was totally guilty of this, you know, you want to say provocative things on stages and panels. So I may have said the future of our business is being an agency. Okay. It sounded really good. It's not. The future of business is being a publisher. Future of business is being a publisher. I will admit here, there's a pivot. That said, many of the things that but what does that what does that mean? I remember I, I had spoken with with uh, with Meredith um, on this podcast, and she talked about um, changing a little bit with with T Brand. Um, it doing some almost like internal work too. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I think utilization is always something that is interesting. Because I mean, agencies are laser focused on utilization. Well, you're you're like you're getting nerdy here. This is yeah. deep down like like wait, media company economics. Wait until the uh, the GDPR portion of the program. The, the, uh, <laughs> can I skip that? Uh. No, I but but no, it's a real issue. It's kind of like churn and stuff. Like everyone wants to talk about the top line subscription numbers, but like managing churn is just as important as getting getting new people because you can get new you can get new subscribers in by putting all sorts of different offers out there but you know if you're churning you know 50 percent of your customers year over year it seems a little tough right yeah totally um, totally get it anyway this is one of those issues the the utilization, utilization rate is um and i remember i was having a, a, a lunch with troy young from hearst mm-hmm. and um he was talking about some of his previous agency days and how he was laser focused on, I think it was an 80, 80% utilization rate. And that was the key to the business. And trying to bring that into a really diversified publishing business is hard because the media business at the end of the day, the media sales business is kind of driving. And it's hard. You can't control billable hours um, in a pitch process mm-hmm. that may stretch for six months because ultimately we've mm-hmm. got to deliver the revenue and it's not just a pure service model. Right. Versus a pure, pure service model, you're able to establish that utilization rate, create the team, build the hours, and you can control it and control the margins. But And you go up and down. And that's that's one issue. And I, you go up and down. That's a huge I, Paul point. Paul Rossi, huge point. Uh, he's now gone from The Economist. The Economist was, was bringing this up with me and he said, we don't have the, the, the muscle to just all of a sudden lose a client and so we cut 15 people. Like that's just not something that publishers necessarily do. Like, well, it's culturally, it's, it's not it's not in our business. But we just hired um, a brilliant woman, Amber Gill, to run our agency business. So she's now the president of T Brand. She runs the studio. She runs Hello Society, the Influencer Network, and Fake Love, our experiential agency. So we brought her over. She was previously the president of Martin Agency. Okay. Um, had so she's Collins. used to that. She's used to all this, <laughs> and everything you just said are the things she's been kind of pounding on my desk about over the last few months um, because they're the, they're the tools that you need to run an effective service business. Right. But you, we, we got to talk about content studios. We kind of glazed over that one. Okay. The future of the content studios. What is the future so, of the content studio? I just think it's, I think you're going to see a lot of these media companies like us. So, and I want to plug this, like T-Brand has done very well. 
I think, and the, the, the talent we brought in is incredible. And that talent we wouldn't have been able to bring in in the past, in the previous business model. So when we're just selling media. Mm-hmm. That said, I think the, we are reaching the end of the, very, the kind of standard branded content sales model where you, know, you publish the one piece of content on the site and sell audience around it. I think that, that model is beginning to mature and could potentially decline in the future. So you mean that like the stuff you guys did with like Netflix, the stuff and, that everybody does. Yeah. I mean, listen, so every single so public, then what is the future kind of like engagement look like if it's not around that, you know, we're going to create this experiential thing and we're going to use our media to drive people to it. We got to sell ideas. We got to get back to just focus. And it sounds vague and yeah. you know, hard to package, but you branded content as a standalone line of business. I would argue is going to go away. Um, it'll be one of the, not go away. It's going to, it, it will decline. I think. Well, everything gets commoditized. This is the internet, <sighs> but this is creativity. In theory, you <laughs> so shouldn't what? be. Uh, oh, there's that. It's the fourth day of can Rose kicking in. <laughs> uh, F that. Um, so I, I, I don't think you should be able to commoditize creativity, but because we've been jamming it through these very rigid branded content media product models it has. So you go in and meet with the CMO and they say, yeah, everybody has a content studio. Yep. I get it. It's a capability. But you're sitting on the other side being like, I've built this amazing 150 person creative team that's not the same as... But everyone is coming in and saying the same story. I mean, you guys were unique maybe five years ago, but like, you know, since then, like you said, like everyone has. Well, well, okay. But imagine if, imagine if WPP went in and and pitched XCMO. And they were like, yeah, you're an agency. <laughs> so is IPG. Well, you know, agencies are dealing with that to some degree. But we, we do. Yeah, I mean, there's just things that differentiate us. So anyways, I just think, I think you're going to see, uh, back to your, your quippy point, we'll be a publisher in the future. I think you're going to see most publishers say that again. Okay. New York Times pivots to publishing. That's my headline. <laughs> I got it. Let's run with it. Um, one point on ads. Um, I, I, I said before, I'm a New York Times subscriber. I don't know what I pay. 300 bucks a year? What do I pay? Well, it depends um, on what, what offer. Did you get oh the 99 I probably didn't get a good offer. Anyway, the, uh, whatever 99 it is, cents for three months? Whatever it is, um, you know, it's well worth it. But why do I still get ads? Why, why can I not pay um, to not have ads? Well, it's a good question. It's a question that, I'm, that gets hotly debated all the time. Let's just flip it. Would you pay more? To not have ads, um, possibly, I, I, me, probably not. But I think that there is like a, a probably about a ten percent of the Cohort. New York Times audience that would pay for, um, for no ads, no tracking. Um, you know, we see here in, in Europe, and something I want to ask you about. Uh, Let's just skip it with <laughs> with GDPR because there's like no programmatic ads I've noticed on the New York Times. Uh, is it Europe. a pristine reading experience? Um, it is. It's it's not bad. Uh, um, uh, there are not many different types of ads. A lot of crossword puzzle ads uh, here in Europe. Um, I'm not but, making enough money off that. But I think that uh, there is this argument that like, look at the success of Netflix. You know, there there is this move towards ad-free experiences that people seemingly will pay not just for great content but an ad-free experience too i i I think about this a lot and um i inherently i have some self-interest in this discussion as well and i'd be lying if um you know if i if i said that my boss wasn't thinking about this um she is 
the my argument is that our ads aren't disruptive enough to pay to get out of them. And the yeah. only ad-free models I think that I see out there that are very successful, I mean you mentioned Netflix and Spotify. or or let's just or Spotify or or Hulu. Yeah. So like Hulu, Spotify, really good examples. You get a you you get two options when you go. You can either go ad-free and pay more or you get ads and I think mm-hmm. you get it actually for free on both. Yeah. Hulu might come with a small cost. Um, their ads are annoying. Well, the interest I do not want to listen to to you know the Yeah. I think my we wrote a story years ago about Spotify because I found it very interesting because like what they were using ads for was actually to drive their paid business and it seemed like to me that like their interests were into getting the annoyance level up to such a degree that you would convert which there's some irony in that but which I, which but if you're an advertiser you're like do I really want to pay you to then take my brand and beat someone over the head with it until they pay you again I mean, you're getting paid <laughs> it's kind of brilliant it's kind of i mean that sounds very profitable by the way yeah that sounds um, great i think well if you if that's you, why they have a giant peach in your mouth <laughs> don't don't rub it in um i think i i'm gonna just i'll just keep hammering at home i think i don't think our ads are annoying enough or disruptive enough to pay to get out of them i think if you're a video-based publisher and you're selling pre-roll mm-hmm. that's annoying and I would, I personally would, will always pay to get out of a pre-roll. I will always pay to get out of an audio ad because mm-hmm. it's in my way. Banner ads are too easily skippable. You so, just scroll right by. With GDPR, I mean, are you, you did shut off programmatic? In we your, did, right? We did. Is that coming back? I, honestly, I think it's just a wait and see. I mean, like the risk being very transparent, it wasn't a big enough part of our business to make this decision really hard i mean it was it's relatively small in the big pie and i think it's i think it's interesting just to see how it all works i've got lots of issues with the programmatic business broadly programmatic industry um and i want to see in europe particularly around the demand side that once you shut down programmatic can we get a lift in direct and mm. if we can get a lift in direct enough to offset or even modestly offset the programmatic business i think the ben- the brand benefits and frankly the consumer benefits, even though that's not my world, may make up for it. Could you see a point where you don't have you don't, u- you don't have to you don't use programmatic in the United States, or is it just too ingrained? And I'm by, by programmatic, I mean from other demand sources, not like you know a private marketplace or something. Not like the direct that. programmatic business, yeah, because yeah, you were you were queuing me up to do the standard. Programmatic is just a way of buying. I know, I know. Not a pri- <laughs> You've heard it before. Um, Probably no, probably no. I mean, it's a it's a big business. Uh, you know, that said, I think it it, it it the open market needs to get cleaned up, and it's a you know it is a it is still the wild west out there. And um, I my issue with it is e- there is no future where clients aren't doubling down in that world. I mean, every CMO, CMO I talk to is least having the discussion about moving more and more of their media business and house as their data gets more centralized, which makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to own your own data and then you want to automate your media business as much as you can as it relates to that data. And everything revolves around how you can track it and making the process as efficient as possible. Right. So in no world does that business not grow, which means we're going to need to be a part of it. That said, there is so much fraud going on right now, and we have countless examples of this. Yeah. 
and very little control over what's coming through those pipes, it's really challenging for publishers from a from a brand perspective to feel comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And then from a business perspective, at, in, in some instances, feel like you're cannibalizing your own business. You're kind of doing a deal with the devil. Right. And, you know, the fear is that you become so reliant on it in the future that you'd, you've completely lost control. So in Europe, I'm really excited about what we're doing. Um, I hope it It's a very works. blunt approach, isn't it? it? It's a very blunt approach. And who knows? I mean, maybe a year from now, I'm sitting here saying, hey, it didn't work out. Yeah. But I'm happy that we get to try. And, you know, you... you well, is GDPR... Let me just ask you this on GDPR. I, can take I, told, you, I told you there's going to be a GDPR <laughs> portion of I this. Wanted to t- I was going to give you some fun... So there's, there's some fun examples, like, you know, behind the scenes, day to day at the Times. Okay. Um, and there's a, a brilliant woman who works for me, um, also brilliant, who you just featured in um, your... I think it's Changemakers? Yes. Did you Changemakers? So Alison Murphy. Um, and she sits kind of on top of the ad quality... I'll call it division in right. the time. So all any ire about any ad whack-a-mole. gets directed. At, whack-a-mole, <laughs> exactly. So just one quick thing on GDPR. Do you think overall it will be a net benefit for publishers? Because I guess my, I know that the, the there's no. short-term pain. There is short-term pain. Um, that's without a doubt. And it's, it's a very sh- strange law, I believe, for Americans to sort of comprehend. But here's a case. I'm going to make a case. Oh, make the case. Okay. Ultimately, what's going on with GDPR, what's going on with this California ballot initiative and all these other privacy um, things that are going on is it's going to take a lot of data out of the system and that it will inevitably context is finally the, the pendulum will swing somewhat back towards context versus straight audience. Not convinced. <laughs> I'm just... I, I... I, if there's a much easier, more cheaper, better option sitting with the platforms, I just don't see marketers moving back over to context. I think I just go back to, I just, I do not see a future where clients aren't focusing more on data and where they're not doubling down on automating everything around okay, it. So the war is lost. Google and Facebook won. Google and Facebook won, and it's up to us. I think it's up. I think, well, for one, we're not. I think the New York Times will. I actually do think the ad business will grow, and I'm very bullish on it. I think part of it is, as, as um, you know, Mark would say, there's a holiday on the other side. You just got to survive the landing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think we are, and I think we get probably referenced too much as, as the um, kind of shiny example of why to do a certain thing, like why double down on the pay model, look at the New York Times. I just think we're so unique that we can't really re- be right. used as a case study for anyone else. Um, I think it, it's up to us, it's up to other, I would say, elite publishers, because I think only the elite are going to survive, um, to build businesses around a world where Google and Facebook and probably some new platform that comes around, probably, yeah. well, the A word, um, probably maybe even bigger uh, right. than those two, uh, where they're dominating. And let's just kind of, the, the battle, the battle, I don't even argue was a battle. Okay. <laughs> we never really fought. Uh, they just kind of took the business. I think the future is going to be much more high touch, much more about building brand moments, much more about selling ideas. And right, focusing on the stuff that they don't do. Correct. We build businesses um, around it. And it's still a great business, by the way. It's still a great business. It's just different. And it's harder. 
Right. Well, I think also I just saw Rory Sutherland um, from Ogilvy uh, um, had just tweeted something about how the platforms convinced everyone that like what they do best, which is around data and micro targeting, was the most important thing, and that you know creativity and and ideas were not. Um, That's not what they do best. Yeah. So and it inherently isn't their business. I mean, you got to just play to your strengths, and like I would argue, creativity is like the core DNA of the times. So I think, I think there is a great business on the other side of this. It's just going to look, it's gonna be lumpy. It's going to be lumpy. Um, I think we're, we're it's like, it's going to be a bumpy landing. It's going to be a bumpy landing. It's like I think La- we're LaGuardia and like high winds. Well, and I think <laughs> it's something better than that. Teterboro on a G5. Um, so <laughs> see, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so I think, look, but I do think we're in the first quarter of the game where, you know, first step was denial and now we've accepted our fate and from here on out it's about winning in the businesses we do best so i think this is i think this is just started but you don't what you what you see less of now is those publishers going out saying hey we're going to form some programmatic alliance that's going to beat google and facebook in well-lit environments that is not the future the guardian and news corp like and someone else just did that yesterday Uh, ozone i i mean it sounds great. In they theory, always have great I, names. Uh, yeah, Ozone. They, yes, yes. They kind of all sound like like Churchill, like yeah. FDR type alliances. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they sound great. But at the end of the day, is that going to move a CMO? No. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Sebastian, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. This podcast is produced by Aditi Sangal. If you liked our show, and I really do hope you did, please subscribe. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and of course, Anchor.fm. And while you're there, please rate us and leave us a review. This helps people discover this podcast. Or you can even tweet about us to your followings. Richard Fitzgerald and Alyssa Nielsen both recently did that. Thank you, Richard and Alyssa. We will be back next week with a new episode. Thank you.